The Sage Aging Podcast is brought to you by Polk Elder Care Guide, your guide to all things senior care and resources. Find the 2021 guide in English and Spanish at polkeldercare.com. Welcome to the Sage Aging Podcast. I'm your host, Liz Craven. Sage Aging will connect you to information and resources you need to navigate the aging and caregiving journey. I'll bring you education, inspiration, amazing industry guests, and caregiver spotlights to shed some light on the topics of aging. Information and resources can be so hard to find if you don't know where to look, but don't worry, we've got you covered. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and relax as we chat. Are you ready? Hit subscribe now, and let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the Sage Aging Podcast. This is episode eight of season two. Have you ever walked into a room and forgotten what you went in there for, or just drawn a blank on a word that you were trying to find, and then you chalked it up to a senior moment? Have you ever been to a restaurant where the server, who is much younger than you, by the way, speaks to you as if you are a young child and calls you sweetie or pumpkin? Yeah, I don't like that either. (laughs) Or how about this? Have you ever told someone or been told yourself, whoa, you look good for your age? I'll bet you have. I know I have. All of these scenarios have one thing in common. They're all examples of ageism. Ageism is a really big topic to try to tackle in a podcast episode, but it's extremely important and it's an important conversation to have because ageism affects every single age group in one way or another. And the best way to combat it is to talk about it. We're in for a treat today because joining me to have this important discussion is Dr. Kathy Black. For those of you who've been listening to the podcast from the beginning, that name should sound familiar because Kathy was the second ever guest on the Sage Aging podcast, and I am so absolutely thrilled to have her back. Not only is Dr. Black someone I'm honored to call my friend, but she's an accomplished expert in the field of aging. A professor of aging studies and social work at the University of South Florida, Sarasota, Manatee Campus, Dr. Black has more than 40 years of experience working globally in the field of aging as a practitioner, educator, and researcher. My personal introduction to Dr. Black came via the Age-Friendly Communities Initiative by way of AARP, and when I say that she is a fountain of information and inspiration, that is a gross understatement. You can learn more about Dr. Black and all that she does via the link to her bio in the blog post for Season 2, Episode 8 at sageaging.com or in the show notes of your favorite podcast app. Welcome to the show, Kathy. Thanks so much for joining me again. Oh, I am honored to be here, Liz, and I thank the world of you and all the great work you're doing. So just my pleasure. Oh, so glad to have you. A conversation with you is always something I look forward to because I always walk away feeling like I know something that I didn't know before. So I'm looking forward to this conversation on such an important topic. But before we get there, let's learn a little bit about you. You recently have had a daughter graduate from college, haven't you? (laughs) 
Yes, my daughter just uh, graduated from college in the College of Education. She's going to be a teacher, so quite honored with that. And uh, another daughter also got married right before the pandemic. And so I've been with my husband for over 40 years. So we're, uh, we're quite excited about that family stage cycle of life where we're looking forward to the next phase, possibly of grandparenting. You never know. Hooray! I am too. I'm right there with you, Kathy, and I can't wait for that part of life to begin. <laughs> so you also have, I think it, this is great background for our audience to know, you also have background in caregiving. Yes, I do. You know, you did such a great job, Liz. You know, I graduated nursing school in 1979, so I've been in the field for a very long time. And yes, I was a caregiver for my grandmother. She lived with my husband and I for 10 years. She had dementia and depression. And uh, we even moved out. I, we, I went to graduate school and I'm from New York. And I went to graduate school in Los Angeles at USC and UCLA. And we took her with us. And she even used to go to classes with me. She was uh, very special. And so, uh, yes, I've had that personal experience as well as literally every other experience under the sun in the field of aging, you know, with so many years under the water there. And that is such an important part of life. I wonder sometimes those who don't experience it, I kind of feel like they're missing something amazing. Well, you know, Liz, I'll tell you, Rosalind Carr says that there's four kinds of people in the world. Those who have provided care, those who are providing care, those who will provide care, and those who will need care. That's everybody. And it is just a human experience to care for each other. And uh, you and I know that we wouldn't change a thing. It's one of the most privileged things. Yes, there's a lot of talk and work, and certainly there's a lot of stress, and some days certainly are challenging. But, you know, the upside is uh, always more memorable and more important and really shapes our character, as you know, Nothing. I, I wouldn't do a thing o- over again. The only thing I guess I just wish was that I wish I had children when she was around, but that's it's just the way it went. Yep. And I, I agree with you 100%. It changed me as a person. I mm-hmm. am not the same person I was before providing care for our parents and changed for the better, I might that's add. That's right. That's right. Well, let's jump into our discussion because this is a biggie. I don't even know where to begin. I guess the best place is at the beginning. Let's define ageism. What is that? Ageism is uh, described as thoughts and feelings and actions toward people of other age groups. Now, traditionally, we hear of younger and older age groups, but the truth is there are six generations alive today. And you mentioned something earlier, which was correct, Liz. Ageism goes both ways. It's not just ageism towards older adults, although many people immediately assume that. Older people can have ageist attitudes towards other age groups as well. And by the way, a very prominent form of ageism is older adults with ageist beliefs towards other older adults. But just getting back to, you know, the thinking. So the thinking or is really you're just your thoughts. So, for example, if somebody says something about an older person or they're uh, watching something or they see an older person and first words are, oh, old people are cranky, something like that. Well, that's uh, a stereotype. And, you know, I think it's fair to mention that we are not born thinking or feeling or acting in any way towards anyone. All of this is really socially constructed. We learn it, Liz. 
And so thoughts are stereotypes. Feelings lead to prejudice. Feelings are really your feelings about other age groups. And that starts to affect, you know, if you don't like somebody or you just any sort of emotional reaction that really has nothing to do with another person because you don't know them. But if it's simply on the basis of age, yeah, that's prejudice. And then, of course, action is when some sort of activity is taken. It leads to discrimination and people are impacted from, you know, sort of the behavioral manifestations of how you feel or how your group or organization operates because discrimination can occur in a lot of settings. It's a lot to take in. And frankly, when you start to learn about ageism, I know for me personally anyway, I was a little bit shocked at some of my ageist behaviors that I didn't recognize before I started thinking about it in those terms. I think that's pretty common for most people, don't you think? Yeah, I, I love how you started the, the piece out by talking about those few examples. Uh, a big part of it is we don't realize, but we are in effect perpetuating ageism through some of those behaviors. Again, not intentional. This is why we refer to it as implicit bias, because we're not even aware of it. But you're right. It is considered one of the last eight uh, isms to be addressed by society. We are certainly trying to tackle classism, racism, and certainly gender issues, uh, sexism. Ageism still remains sort of out there. And of course, you know, the intersection of all of them together is yet even greater than any one, but it still is a a very serious issue and it greatly affects people in in a lot of ways. I agree. It affects me personally. And I think that I sometimes am the worst person who, I don't even know how to say it. I'm the one who inflicts it upon myself. It's amazing to me how many times I have to stop myself when I say, oh, I'm too old to do that. Or I shouldn't wear things like that. That's for younger people. Or older women should have shorter hair. All of these things that society has told us over the years. And as you start to step back and go, oh, wait a minute, why not? I can have long hair if I want to. And absolutely, I can work out next to those young folks over there and perform just as well as they can. You know, it's those limitations, self-limitations that we impose upon ourselves that we don't realize are ageist. Well, you're right, Liz. You picked it up from experience, from the media. It was reinforced and it basically becomes sort of a lens in which you see the world. And as you know, it really can have a lot of... uh, unnecessary effects when you really start to incorporate it and it becomes a negative self-reflection. I mean, Liz, we don't want people hating themselves because Mm -hmm. they look in the mirror and they're older. You know, this is one of the problems. As a matter of fact, we know that people who harbor negative ageist beliefs live seven and a half years less than others. They have poorer health. They're more likely to have depression, more likely to engage in behavior that doesn't, you know, because they have this negative trajectory of themselves is sort of fatalistic. Ah, you know, it's all downhill from here. And it leads to, you know, Liz, look, you know me from the age friendly work. This is about living fully and thriving every day rather than dreading and hating yourself. And as you were talking, it made me think of an exercise that I do with the students. 
Now, it might be a little too late to do with your listeners because we've already been talking about it, but perhaps some of them can think about it. So, for example, I say to the students before they know anything about me or anything about the class, the content we're going to discuss, I will just say to them, word association, what does the word aging mean to you? And I then I say to them, look, I don't want you overthinking it. I want the first word that comes to your mind. Sigmund Freud referred to word association as uh, a lot like dreams, the royal road to the unconscious. Because if you don't filter out through your mind what you think I want to hear or what might make you look like a, you know, a worldly person or whatever, you will generally say, so, you know, the students will say things like death or disease or grandparents or retirement or time. People will say whatever word comes to mind and we go around very quickly. We don't filter it. And then when we come back, we look at those words and we characterize really whether the word has a negative or positive or neutral connotation. And the problem is, and it's, it's a real revelation for the problem is if your true, if that word that popped into your mind was negative, that means that that's the self dialogue you're telling yourself every day when you think about aging. Mm-hmm. And so then you're reinforcing it. And of course it will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so people don't know what they don't know until it becomes brought to their attention. And then they can uh, start to have uh, some sense of really challenging where that came from. And, uh, you know, one thing I will say to you, Liz, I've been teaching uh, college now since the mid-1980s. And I will tell you, and I teach, you know, across the nation. I've taught internationally. And I will tell you the good thing is that I am seeing more positive and neutral connotations Yes, I still say negative, you know, you name it, I do. And what is often the case is people come to these attributions about aging in large part because of their personal experiences. And you know what, if you had relatives where grandparents were happened to be ill or something, you know, of course you can see how greatly that shaped you. But what's important for people to realize is your personal experience does not characterize a whole You know, there is an incredible diversity of aging. I mean, you know, have you gone to the gym lately, Liz? There are people Mm -hmm. decades older than you that can walk a lot faster than you. Oh, my goodness. Yes. There's a lady that I work out with or used to work out with before I started doing my home workouts. And she was 30 years older than me and kicked my butt oh, yeah. every single time. <laughs> Liz, do you remember, remember Jack Lane? Yeah. <laughs> he was really a treasure for all of us. And, you know, if that's not an indication of what we can be physically, now, of course, genetics and lifestyle, and also broader experiences throughout your life can affect your musculature as you age. But, but clearly, he truly was something else. Well, I love that when, as people, we can shift our mindset, Yes, how differently the world looks through that lens, because it really makes your life experience very different when you start to rework those thoughts in your brain and not look at things that way anymore. I love it. I find it Mm -hmm. very exciting. And for me to look to the future is not 
necessarily about slowing down, but shifting gears and making a change when it comes to retirement, not in slowing down as a person, but creating new adventures. What do those new adventures look like? And it's looking forward to that. That is so exciting. Where before I kind of looked at that time of life as something that might be a little bit scary. You know, what happens when I get to that age where you've already lived half of your life and you start looking at things in different terms? Well, you know, Liz, you you mentioned a moment ago, and it's actually quite a paradox because, yes, while many people are afraid to be judged of what, you know, how a a 60-year-old woman should wear her hair or what is the proper attire. So much of it is cosmetic and superficial, as you know. The interesting thing is that age actually is associated with, you know, we know that people go through psychological changes that really affect, for example, a sense of maintaining integrity and also a sense of generativity and concern about contributing to the world. You know, in in essence, Liz, we become aware. One of the theories is socio-emotional selectivity theory from Carlston out of the University of California in San Francisco. And she basically said people choose to spend their time differently because there is this awareness that, frankly, Liz, there's only so many sunsets left, so many sunrises. And with the remaining time, you know, Liz, you know, you, you, you've heard of, um, you know, the Red Hat Society. There's women who, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to dress and do and they don't care what others think because, God darn it, this is their time. And this is this is it. This is not a uh, dry run. This is all you've got. And they're going to live it out regardless of what others think or feel. <laughs> and they are so fun. If you've never had a lunch <laughs> next yes. to a table of Red Hat ladies, <laughs> yeah. you've not lived because oh, they are hilarious no. and yes. fun. <laughs> <laughs> they are, Liz. That's really great. All right. So let's shift gears and talk about, we touched on it a bit earlier, but ageism doesn't just affect older adults. This is something that affects society as a whole. So let's talk about who is affected by ageism and and what does that look like? I mean, Liz, obviously it affects people uh, to the extent that they accept it or give into it. And so it's obviously got an individual impact to some people, mentally, physically, socially. But it's so pervasive, Liz, that it affects literally every organization, every industry, and it affects literally every aspect of society. And I'll just give you an example. You know, when we were doing our uh, age-friendly work and we held some focus groups and we simply wanted to ask groups of older people about transportation, anywhere they wanted to go, they could have said anything they wanted. And these are multiple, multiple groups and dozens and dozens of people participating. And, you know, we would hear things about crossing lights, etc. So legitimate things. And in previous segments of those sessions, we asked about this ageism and people would say, no, there's no, nothing, nothing. And then when we got to driving transportation, people insisted that they've never experienced or they don't harbor any ageist beliefs. But what we heard loud and clear was older adults who honestly have a lot of strong feelings and ageist beliefs about other older drivers. And I remember one guy, I mean, I, it's you know, a little tongue in cheek. It was, it's actually a funny anecdote, but he said, 
there, the, this particular um, time, there was a recent story in the paper of an older adult who had some sort of medical accident while they were driving and they went off the road. And it had been recently in the news. And so uh, this particular man said, yeah, I'll tell you. Those 90 year olds, I'll tell you, you just don't want, you know, you know, I'll tell you, you just don't know where, you don't know what's going to happen. And then he said, now I'm 86, but I'll tell you, those 90 year olds. Uh, <laughs> and, and Liz, Liz, what was very distressing about that was that we outlive our safe driving abilities by about seven to 10 years. So the question isn't if this happens to us, but when, and we live in an auto-dependent world and just to hear these strong feelings. And, and by the way, Liz, I've got to tell you, I heard tremendous ageism from older adults about younger drivers. They don't know how to drive. I don't know how they got like, I mean, we, so again, Liz, it goes both ways. And mm -hmm. whenever we are judging someone that we don't know them from Adam, uh, but we feel strongly about characterizing them. And if there is a feeling attached to it, it's prejudice. If it's just a thought, you know, they're bad drivers, then it's just a stereotype. But if it is attached to a feeling, and many of us do move it forward in that way, it starts to affect everything. And, you know, Liz, that was just one example. You know, again, we did hear loud and clear from our community and actually previous work years before that. I was very surprised, Liz, when we looked at ages. Actually, it, it was uncovered because we were looking at that time at dignity and independence and how people experience that in the context of community life. And what was very surprising to me was the numbers of people who felt that they were judged on the basis of gray hair, white hair, wrinkles, you know, mobility aids, a wheelchair walker, glasses, hearing aids, you name it. People felt invisible. People felt disrespected. It was very, very sad to hear everything. Liz, I'm a gerontologist. I knew all too well about ageism. What really floored me was the extent to which people were experiencing it. And uh, I just very joyfully go about my day in and out of my community. And everybody, whether they were the president of the United States or somebody sweeping a floor, I treat everybody the same mm -hmm. with full respect. And I, you know, it's, and, and I role model that. And these are part of the remedies, Liz, for changing it is that, and, and it is changing, Liz, and, it's, and it will change more, but part of it is really role modeling and not, not being dismissive. You still see it everywhere. Also, even like the old movies, you'll see it all the time, but you've got to just be aware of it and, and be the one to chart a new course. Absolutely. And we have to chart a new course by starting with kids when they're young and helping them to see the value in their yes. relationships with older adults, whether yes. those are neighbors or grandparents, aunts and uncles, just other family friends. They need to understand how valuable those relationships are. And furthermore, as communities, we need to focus on making sure that there are plenty of opportunities right. for intergenerational activities to happen yes. and that people gather together from different generations to enjoy one another. Liz, you couldn't have said it better and you are right. And I'll just tell you a little bit more to that. And, and families are a beautiful illustration because they are, by definition, multi-generational. And so, of course, people love their relatives up and down the age spectrum. But in terms of when we create intergenerational programming, at its best, Liz, it's uh, intentional and it's reciprocal. 
so that it's not just, you know, when people think of intergenerational programming, they think of an older adult reading to a child. And don't get me wrong, that's terrific. And we want to see as much of that as possible. But it's not just benefiting one generation. And by the way, that older adult is benefiting as well. But it's also learning on both sides. And we see that all over the place. I'll give you another example. You know, I teach aging courses. And increasing understanding and empathy is really one of the tools for remedying, as you said, the real future is infants, children who are coming into this world with a blank state, who are being socialized differently. And they're seeing the diversity of aging. They're seeing respect for all age groups. They're seeing people out in public who have white hair. And, you know, it's so superficial that we've even gotten to this point, but it is a superficial aspect of of our public life. Uh, But I think we're changing that. But when I teach classes on aging, the students are asked to do reflection exercises. And I think one of the, you know, one of the ones, there's been many, because I do get a lot of people, for example, who are, you know, waitresses and in customer service, and they say to me, geez, I didn't even understand that cognitive impairment or caregiving or hearing loss or vision issues until, you know, and now all the other waiters or waitresses are learning from me. And I just, I love that, you know, but the one that really was touching for me was this one student who said, you know, it was a sociology of aging course where you cover all aspects of of getting older. And uh, he wrote that he, I can't remember what job and market he was in, but it was something that had to do with shift taking. And apparently there was this older um, guy and he would grab all the, the best job shifts of the week. And uh, every, everybody disliked him for it. And he said to me, you know, Kathy, it was your class though, that I realized that he needed to work because he still needed the money that he needed to go out in the daytime because he couldn't drive and see well at night Mm -hmm. and that he needed to get out because he was widowed and alone. And this was his only socialization. And it was that empathy and that understanding that creates. And, you know, so again, Liz, it goes both ways. I think everybody in these older age groups of which we're, we are now in our life, I'm a boomer, Liz, I'm not sure whether you're Gen X. I think you're, you're Gen yeah. X. You're, yeah. And Liz, by the way, millennials are going to start hitting 50 years old in 2030. Holy cow. <laughs> um, yes. So, I mean, it's an aging society, Liz, but, but the reality is, you know what? We remember what it was like being a parent of an infant and working and getting dinner on that table. And so again, compassion and understanding. And, you know, when you think about it, Liz, this simple, basic respect for each other, this golden rule has so much, not just for ageism, but also for our civic health as well. And really for all of us. So I hope uh, we're going to keep on marching those tunes and we'll see where we get. Very well said. Uh, That is such truth. And wow, what a banner day that must have been for you to have your student come back to you and tell you that story. That's amazing. He really did take in what you were delivering in that class. Oh, yeah. So as far as our personal responsibility to help combat ageism, one of the things I think is a simple way to begin, a simple way to start focusing is the words that we speak. Are there terms that we should be staying away from if we want to try to make some changes personally? 
Yes, Liz. You know, a lot of work was done uh, recently by a lot of major aging organizations uh, trying to understand why the public thinks about aging. It literally shuts down and they just don't want to talk about it. And part of it is, again, this this ageism and this implicit bias. But uh, a big part of it, Liz, and part of the remedy to fight it is our language. And so, for example, Liz, you know, people don't like this, but really adjectives to describe older adults need to be reconsidered, words like senior, and the preference is older adults, um, Mm -hmm. and really just a, a descriptor on the age, and that's it, without any other adjective. Whenever we otherize and we label, we are reinforcing those views and it becomes easier to look at people as non-people, as somebody else, when in fact we're connected with aging and, and, and all the other generations are connected just by, you know, movement in time, Liz. So we do encourage people, and it takes a while to sort of get used to doing this, but to say things like, rather than seniors, to say older adults, but also to say things like our friends and family versus older people. Because the more we personalize and combine, the more inclusive we become. That's a great point. You know that we publish an elder care guide. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we named that thing 27 years ago. So (laughs) now as we've moved forward in society, we're thinking, wow, that's just not the title we wish that it carried Mm -hmm. because of the word elder. So many times when we're out talking to people in the community, they'll say elder, I'm not an elder. I don't need that. And they're right. It, it has nothing to do with their age. It has to do with resources and the things that people need at different stages in their life. So to that end, we actually are making a shift next year and merging the name of the podcast with our guide. So it will be called Sage Aging ah. with Elder with elder care guide as a descriptor underneath. We, we feel like that's probably the right direction to move. And we want people to be able to embrace the information and the content of this incredible resource without feeling strange doing it. Well, again, Liz, remember, it's an identity that people don't want to have because of the beliefs and feelings that they hold. You know, some people would have no problem being called an elder. There's a lot of usage of that word in the most respectful ways and associated with wisdom and just pure goodness. But again, my sense is that people are reacting. They don't want to be identified with a term that they don't see themselves. Mm -hmm. And probably never will. And will resist that term always, yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. So it really is interesting, all of the different ways that you can apply a new train of thought and trying to affect change within your own community. Mm-hmm. So as it relates to community, is ageism being addressed by policy and law around our country? Well, you know, Liz, uh, when you look at every organization, I mean, really in human resources, there's a lot of opportunity to, you know, for example, we see in the workforce a lot of ageism, particularly when it comes to beliefs and attitudes towards older adults, for example, and adapting tech technology. And of course, our work worlds have become quite 
technologically savvy. Certainly people in their 60s and 70s today, they weren't brought up on smartphones and all the uh, computers, but capable of learning they are. And there's little recognition also, I think, of all else that's brought to the table. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in our workforces. There is an Aging and Disability Act from, you know, from 1987, I believe. It's very difficult to prove, but it happens. Look, Liz, with the recession of 2008 and, of course, after COVID, the numbers are really out there that people who have lost their job in their 50s and 60s, many of them are opting for well, some of them are opting for entrepreneurship and some of them are simply exiting the workforce earlier than many of them are taking advantage of early social security, et cetera. Because the reality is ageism does play a role. Many older adults, in fact, are being reminded on a resume, for example, do not give away your age because, well, there's, you know, again, on the hiring end, it may be because we don't want to pay for the experience or ageism in that we want somebody who can work with our software and we don't want to bother having to train a dinosaur, if you will. So there's all these pieces that are out there. It's pervasive. It really is. I know quite a number of people who opted for early retirement because the job hunt was just impossible. It was, you know, bad groceries at the local grocery store or work at the movie theater. Mm -hmm. There really wasn't anything in between, you know, the either top end and you're traveling all the time and have no life and you do that or you can bag groceries or retire. So it's sad that that's the way it is, but that's the world we live in for now. Yes. For now, not for always. No, there's really a lot of work being done on really adapting those workforces so that just because you can't stand 12 hours on your feet anymore or do certain things, certainly adaptions can be made and all sorts of things are starting to happen again for those progressive employers who realize the value because literally every industry is aging out. I, I think it's colliding right now, Liz, with mm -hmm. this incredible labor shortages that we're seeing. Now, of course, it's due to you know multitude of reasons, but literally uh, you don't, you can't pick up the newspaper or uh, turn on the news without seeing yet another industry severely impacted by a worker shortage and long been in the works from literally from an aging society because Liz, we knew for some time that many organizations and industries that hadn't really taken the time to look at this, but when they did, they realized uh, that, you know, X percentage of their workforce would be planning on retirement in the next decade and completely unprepared for that. And there right. needs to be some knowledge transfer planning and some, you know, some transitional planning. But, you know, Liz, think about it. The nurses, you can't have all the older nurses retiring. And then, of course, uh, that's exactly what's happening in some cases. But it's true of literally because, Liz, this is part of what you get with an aging society. Everybody is getting older. Right. That is true. That is true. And baby boomers... That entire generation has had such an effect on everything their entire lives. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> and it's a wonderful thing. But I love the new attitudes, too, that I'm seeing lately. And I am seeing a lot of progress in every place that I find myself. So one notable place is on Clubhouse. I don't know if you use that app or not, but... Yeah. 
the conversations are fascinating in some of the rooms in there. And it is people owning the stages of life that they're in and encouraging and empowering each other and some really productive conversations about how, as a society, we view each other, regardless of age or race or religion or all of those things. And I am seeing so much more of that play out in social media and in the places that we go to socialize. And it's really encouraging where ageism can be such a negative topic. I believe that we've turned a corner that there's so much awareness being placed on it that we're starting to see some of those positive outcomes from it. So I appreciate you being here to have that conversation. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, this is uh, this is the new old age that we're in, my friend, and we are <laughs> we are the pioneers. Yes, we are, and so we just need to make that path a really bright one. Well, before we go, do you have any favorite resources on this topic that you'd like to point our listeners to? Well, uh, you did mention the WHO Global Report on Ageism that had recently come out, and it's really extraordinary. They spent multiple years and team of people looking at that. It is international. If, if the United States thinks they're alone, they are not. It is, and as a matter of fact, Europe is even more ageist. So, and they're much older too. So, very interesting. And so, I do like the the, the WHO Global Report on Ages. You also mentioned some of the concepts from reframing aging, which is part of the Frameworks Institute has done the multi year work on reframing aging, and they're part of the solutions with language. And, you know, there's there's some real leaders out there. Some of you know Ashton Applebaum, who, who wrote, wrote This Chair Rocks, and she's all over the place. And she's got a, a Twitter account where she's always responding to, yo, is this ageist? And so I, I like her work. And also there's a researcher by the name of Margaret Goulet, who wrote a few books, Declining to Decline and Aged by Culture. And I really like her really contextual, historical, social, psychological, anthropological uh, view that helps us realize um, why we are, you know, judging ourselves and each other and really to examine some of those reasons. And, uh, you know, this is the first time in history this many people of these age group has ever lived as long as we are. And so we're really chartering new territory. Wow, that is a whole reading list for next month. I've got it. (laughs) They're all going on my list. I can't wait. Thank you for that. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for being here with me today. I really do appreciate you and all of the wisdom that you have. Well, it was my pleasure, Liz, and I look forward to seeing you again. Absolutely. And thank all of you for listening. I know that we're preaching to the choir here, but this is important stuff. And it starts with each of us taking inventory of our own personal habits and our own language. And as you consider those in your sphere of influence, are there people that you know who need to hear this message? I think that probably all of us can say yes to that. And so I'd encourage you to share this episode. It's season two, episode eight of Sage Aging with them. Be the catalyst that creates change. 
together, with some consistent effort, we will make a difference. If you haven't already, please look for Sage Aging on Instagram and Facebook and also subscribe to the weekly newsletter and get this episode delivered to your inbox every single week. It's easy to do. Just go to sageaging.com and scroll to the bottom of the page and subscribe there. Well, that'll do it for today. Thanks again for listening and we'll talk real soon.